If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with the top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm Alexa Von Tobel, and this week, I'm excited for you to meet Wade Foster, the co-founder and CEO of Zapier, a workflow automation tool which connects to more than 2,000 apps, enabling nearly limitless opportunity to automate. After launching in 2012, Zapier has grown to millions of users, over 300 employees, and was named one of the most highly valued companies to ever go through Y Combinator. Prior to Zapier, Wade worked as a customer development lead for The Ideal Works, Inc. in Missouri. He has degrees in industrial engineering and business administration from the University of Missouri-Columbia. Let's welcome Wade. Hi, Wade. Hi, thanks for having me, Alexa. I want you to just kind of start from the beginning. First of all, tell us the journey of you coming up with the idea for Zapier, and then also just what is Zapier for those of us who aren't fully informed and maybe don't totally understand automation? What does it do? Sure. So Zapier helps you connect all the tools you use at work. So you probably use things like Slack or Gmail or Trello or Salesforce or QuickBooks or MailChimp or you name it. We connect over 2,000 different things. And what Zapier lets you do is just automate the work that happens when the, if inside them. So, you know, if you use PayPal to get paid, you can set up a Zap that posts a message in Slack every time you get paid and have a cool emoji with a money sign on it or something like that. So it can be really simple stuff like that all the way to like full on workflows where it's like, you know, someone fills out a form via type form on my website. I want to route it through a lead scoring tool like Clearbit. And then based on the score, I want to send it to Salesforce or I want to send it to MailChimp or I want to alert a sales rep. Uh, so you can start with these just really simple stuff. And then as you get more comfortable with automation, you can sort of graduate to things that um, are a lot more sophisticated and powerful. Um, how did we come up with the idea? You know, it was, so my co-founder and I, Brian, we were working at Veterans United, which is this mortgage company in uh, Columbia, Missouri. And we were doing a lot of freelancing at nights and weekends. We played in a jazz quartet together. Basically, we're just spending a lot of time. And we would always be like brainstorming back and forth different types of things that we could maybe work on one day. And one of the things that always came up for us in our freelance work was, building these like little one-off integrations and one-off tools. We built a WordPress forms plugin that could like suck leads into Salesforce. We had a PayPal QuickBooks thing. And Brian messaged me one day at work and said, you know, I think we could make something that allows just your everyday knowledge worker to set this stuff up on their own. They don't need to hire engineers. They don't need to use APIs. And when he messaged me that I was like, Yes, I was dealing with the Marketo API at work and I'm not a great engineer myself, so I was struggling. And I just was immediately like, this would help me right now. This would have helped our customers. And so we took it over to a startup weekend, which is like a hackathon style thing. 
uh, in Columbia, Missouri, and built the very first prototype of it that weekend. That's amazing. Can you walk us through just the actual like first few months of you standing up the business? What did that look like? So we're in Columbia, Missouri. There's not, it's not like, you know, Silicon Valley where anyone with an idea gets a million bucks, just sort of, if you sneeze in the direction of a VC, they're, you know, handing out money. That's just not how it is. Our sort of perspective was, well, if we're going to, you know, try and have a business, we got to try and make money somehow. And there's, so this thing has to stand on its own. So I remember coming out of that weekend we sort of had a prototype, but it's not a business. It's just a, it's just a thing that sort of we made in a weekend. And Brian and I sat down and had lunch that day and said, well, hey, do we want to keep working on this? This is the thing that we feel like has some momentum. And, you know, we said, yeah, I think it does. And we'd worked with Mike that weekend um, on it as well. And so we went and grabbed drinks with him that night and said, hey, do you want to keep working on this? Are you excited about it? And he agreed as well. And so the three of us decided, hey, we're going to just keep working on this thing as a side project. We didn't have enough money to sort of decide, like, we're just going to pour all our time and energy into this. We had, you know, bills to pay. And so we kept our day jobs and, you know, we'd go to work, work from, you know, nine to five or whatever. And then usually we'd go snag some high tea, take out Chinese, have a little dinner. And then we would work on building Zapier at night from, you know, dinner to sometimes one, two, maybe even 3 a.m. at times if we were really like in the, in the groove on certain stuff. And, you know, we would just night after night, we would do that. We did that for probably eight months, I would say. And it took us, you know, about a month to get to our first customer. And then from there, we started to get a few more beta customers. And then, you know, about eight months in, it was like, we feel pretty confident in where this is at. And we launched it. I've read that you charged your beta users. Mm -hmm. I want to really understand not only how did you get your first customers, um, walk us through this charging of them, and how did you think about early product adoption and making sure you were getting product market fit? Yeah. Uh, so this was 2011, 2012. Uh, and if you recall, like Lean Startup was like really in its heyday then. And so a big part of the tenants was, hey, people aren't willing to get their credit card out. You're probably not solving a big enough problem. We're also in the Midwest and we're thinking, we need to know if people care about this. And if they give us money, we know that they care. So it was a very high bar to meet, but if we meant it, we felt really good about where we were going. And so we just said from the get-go, we're gonna charge for this. The very first customer ended up being Andrew Warner of Mixergy. I'd seen him on a Stack Exchange forum asking for a PayPal high-rise integration. And so I emailed, cold emailed him on a whim not expecting him to reply back at all. I just sort of was like, well, maybe he might. He replied back and said, hey, I, I actually don't need this PayPal high-rise thing anymore, but, but did you make something? He was just sort of curious if we had solved that problem for him. And I said, well, you know, sort of. We've built something that connects all these different tools. And I went to his website and I noticed he was using Wufu and I noticed he was using Aweber. And so I was like, it can help you connect things like Wufu, Aweber, and other stuff. Uh, and he emailed back and was like, oh, I actually really do need a Wufu Aweber integration. If you have one, I would love to use it. And so I went back to Brian and Mike and I was like, hey, we got to build Wufu and Aweber like now. So how long will that take? And uh, they had it done in I think a day or two. And so I shot Andrew an email and said, great, I think we have it ready. I can shoot you a link where you can get access to it. And he says, how much does it cost? We didn't even have a bank account. We hadn't even thought about it at that point in time. 
And so I just sort of off the top of my head said, well, it's going to be a hundred bucks for the lifetime of the beta. I'm not sure how long the beta is going to last. It could be done tomorrow. It could be done in eight months. It could be done in 18 months. I just don't know. It's going to take us a while, but a hundred bucks gets you in for however long it lasts. And he said, great, where do I send the money? And I said, well, I guess you can send it to my personal PayPal address. And so that was how we got the first customer. But by and large, it was still a similar sort of setup where we try and find a person who was in need of this. We tell them what we have, and then we give them access, and we'd watch them try and use it. We'd watch them try and set something up. If they got it set up on their own, great. Most of the time they didn't, though, and we would pay attention to where they were falling short. We'd then go back and try and make the software easier to use. And we did that probably, I don't know, 100, 200 different times before we felt like, okay, more people are getting this set up without our help than not. That meant for us, we felt like we were ready to launch. How did you think about which apps to focus on first and where have you seen the stickiest or most creative integrations? Yeah, it, the things we focused on were, uh, it's a bit of data and a bit of intuition. And so we would look at things like, you know, what apps are popular. Um, so you'd go check like their Alexa rank uh, to see who's getting a lot of traffic. You would go check, you know, uh, things like TechCrunch and see like if you could see any metrics and stuff like that. You'd talk to your friends and hear what like tools they're using at work very regularly. And so that sort of became the data-driven side. And then, you know, the intuition side was just like, hey, we like this tool. It feels popular. It feels like a good fit. So we'll start there. And then the third input was if we had a customer coming in, that sort of was like, well, customers go first. They go to the front of the line. So, you know, in Andrew's case, it was Wufu and A. Weber. And so we were like, I, I don't know how many people use these tools, but he wants it. So we're going to do it. And so that was kind of the three inputs that we had. And we just, you know, it was sort of a, a squishy list, a sort of squishy ranked list that sort of moved around a little bit. Um, and we just kept working down it and, you know, we got to about, I think 50 that we built on our own before we launched our dev platform and started letting other people build on it. And then when others started building on it, that's when it really started to take off. Uh, so that's kind of how we just decided to go about building the different integrations. Zapier is one of the most highly valued companies to ever come out of Y Combinator. How did it evolve during your time at YC? And what does that mean to be one of the most highly valued companies? How do you process that? I think it's probably easier to talk about our time there than to talk about the how we're valued. That part still feels a little surreal to me because there's so many companies that are even still so far beyond where we're at. You know, during YC, one of the first things that I think was so helpful for them is we were going through this beta, like this beta process of just like testing it with users, rinse, wash, and repeat. We've done that so many times and it had actually gotten pretty good but we were still a little nervous about launching because we were just like, we're just not sure. We could still see all the flaws. We knew all the places that it was not imperfect. And, you know, we just were like, ah, just a couple more iterations, a couple more iterations. This is sort of the story we were telling in the back of our head. And so when we got accepted into YC, one of the first things they did was just sort of like drilled us on the, the current state of the product and the current state of users. And very early, they were like, you all are far enough. Just launch the thing. Just get it out there. Like, things are working. And so they gave us a little bit of that confidence just to get over that hill and go. Uh, and then from there, it was trying to figure out just how do we make this stuff easier? How do we get more apps on this? We wanted to make sure there was a zap for everything. Uh, and so it, that's where we decided, well, how do we want to go about this? We 
Um, do we want to try and keep building these apps ourselves or do we want to try and make it easier for others to build on Zapier? Uh, and it wasn't obvious at the time that other people would build apps on Zapier. It was sort of a, it was sort of a little bit of just a, a hope, honestly. We had one email from Aaron at Box saying, why isn't Zapier on Box? Or why isn't Box on Zapier? And we were like, well, it's just three of us. Like, that's the honest reason is we just haven't gotten to it yet. Um, and based on that, we were kind of like, well, if he's willing to sort of inquire about it, maybe he'd be willing to put some engineers forward to help build this thing. And the first week of YC, we started building the developer platform and launched it as part of that. The big thing that YC honestly gave us was focus. We've been doing this nights and weekends. At YC, this allowed us to go full-time. We went all in. We moved from Missouri to California, which, you know, for better or worse, that meant that we were sort of out of our normal environment of, you know, our friends and, you know, family and routines. And all we had, to, the only thing we had was working on the company. And so we worked on the company nonstop uh, for that summer. And it just allowed us to make a ton of progress early on. And, and so, you know, I, I think that was the, the focus was the big thing that we got out of YC. And then, you know, since then, we've just really tried to focus on how do we help customers? How do we make sure there's apps for all their needs? And, you know, I just think that focus on our customers, by and large, has helped us fuel the success to, you know, one of the more valuable YC companies uh, that, that has come through the incubator. So, for everybody listening, all of the aspiring founders out there, Wade, you've only raised one round of seed funding from YC and Bessemer and have been profitable since 2014. Talk a little bit about that because that is such a rare thing and also really impressive, but talk a little bit about that. Yeah, most businesses don't raise money. And so we were, you know, starting in Columbia, Missouri, we felt like we were most businesses, like raising money was sort of a foreign concept for us. Going through YC was sort of our first, you know, I guess, experience in that there was another way to build a company that you could raise all this money and that you could use that to try and, you know, fund growth and things like that. But our perspective always was that if we are going to build an enduring company, the best way to do that is to make sure that we built something that our customers valued enough to pay us. And so we always had that focus on, hey, if we're going to build something that endures, we need to be able to fund it from customer revenue. And so our focus always has been, let's finance it with customer revenue. VC funding is unsustainable. At some point in time, that you have to, you have to find a way to make sure that it's with customers. And so we were just, we just thought, well, let's just start there. Let's just see if we can avoid it. So we took the you know, YC investment money early on and pretended like, hey, this might be the last thing we ever get. This might be the last time we ever do it. And we really focused on marketing and focused on growth and focused on ways to solve the most customers' problems that we could and get the product into their hands. And then since then, money has never been the limiting factor in our growth. There's been other things that have been limiting factors. How, how fast can we hire? Um, what types of things can we implement? How fast can we build things? Those have always been... The, the more pressing limit limiter. And when people ask you, well, what if you could do with 10 million more dollars or what could you do with this many more dollars? The answer is like, I don't know that we would do anything differently. And so why give up valuable equity? Why give up a part of your, you know, this thing that you built to somebody else if you're not sure you're going to get much out of it? Um, 
I've always felt like Zapier was the most valuable thing that I own, the most valuable thing that I've been a part of. I just didn't want to give that up lightly. I think so many founders are anxious to have a name brand VC on their cap table or to show the logo off. And I always just felt the opposite. I always felt like I was more proud to have Zapier uh, front and center and didn't really want anyone else to do that unless it was totally necessary. And that's not to you know shame anyone else who goes that path. I think that path is necessary for some types of ventures. But for ours, it just wasn't the thing we were excited about. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on For Starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. I want to shift to something that Zapier was really early on, and you've gotten a lot of attention around the fact that you have a fully remote team with hundreds of employees spread out over 27 countries and 35 different states. You guys were early to this approach. How did you choose it and what makes it work well for you? Uh, for us, it was really just, you know, playing the cards that we were dealt. We started in Columbia, Missouri. It was a side project. Side projects don't have offices. And so, yeah, we would get together nights and work together sometimes, but many times we would also get together or we wouldn't get together. We would just be working from our homes and chatting over Gchat at the time or iChat at the time and working via GitHub and Trello and, you know, all these online tools. And so the three of us were pretty comfortable just getting work done anywhere that there was an internet connection. You know, we go through YC. That's the only time the three of us are in the same place working on Zapier at the same time. At the tail end of that, Mike moves back to Missouri. And we're not going to, you know, kick him out of the company. He's too valuable for what we're trying to do. In the back of our minds, we just said, well, we'll just sort of go back to this remote thing. It seems to be working for a few other companies. There was, you know, uh, Basecamp at the time has always been very publicly remote. Uh, Buffer was sort of coming up and doing some remote stuff. Help Scout was doing it. GitHub, Reddit. There was enough of these companies that had done it that we felt like, well, you know, we could try it too. And so we ended up looking at hiring folks around that time too. And we didn't know anyone in the Bay Area. All the folks that we knew were back in the Midwest. And the advice we got to de-risk hiring was work with people you'd already worked with. So we ended up hiring someone uh, in Chicago that was a former colleague of me, mine, and we hired another former colleague of mine who was in Columbia. And so at five people, we're across three cities. And we noticed a few things. One, revenue keeps growing. Two, customer count keeps growing. Three, uh, the team is happy. Four, the customers are happy. And you kind of just look at those things and go, well, all the metrics that seem to matter are fine, even, even better than fine. They're, they're working great. And so why don't we just give this a shot? Like we can go do this. We can tap into a global talent pool that seems to be a, a strategy that nobody else is trying to do right now. And so we'll just have a head start on this. And that's kind of, kind of how it happened. So it sort of was a little bit of a happy accident that very early on we realized could be 
uh, uh, an advantage for us. Um, I love it. If you had to say there was one thing that you guys had to get really good at through it, like what was the challenge of it? I want to hear what was the hardest thing you had to get good at? Was it security? Was it infrastructure for the technology? Was it culture? So I want to hear the hardest part. And then I want to hear the thing that has been like the unexpected pleasant surprise that made your business better. Mm. One thing that we had to get really good at is running a fully distributed company requires a level of discipline that I think young companies often don't have. And sometimes like, it's just difficult to do, uh, you know, as you get to a certain size, you have to have this discipline, you have to have this organizational rigor, but young companies can benefit from a little bit more casual approach that they can sort of turn on a dime. They can be a little, um, lazy. I call it lazy in a good way, you know, can sort of be in an office, tap someone on the shoulders. And that's a, that's a totally fine way to communicate and get stuff done you get to a certain size and you just can't do that anymore. You have to a little bit of structure. You have to a little bit of a rules of the road. Well, in a distributed company, you have to get good at that early on. And I think one of the most important disciplines in that is your management skills. And I, I was a first time manager. I never hired anyone, never managed anyone before. And, um, you know, I think my natural instincts were fine, but I wouldn't call it great. I, there's many things in my first year or two of management where I look back on and I think, boy, you just, you, you, you punted on that one way. You really did not do very well. Someone on the team sort of subtly pointed a resource to me, uh, very politely. It was like, Hey, maybe here's a thing you might check out, Wade. This is a, a helpful thing that could, could be useful. Uh, which in, in hindsight was more about like, Wade, you better figure this stuff out or else was kind of the, the hint. Uh, and so, you know, we really started learning how to do management, but then also how to make sure to scale management across the company. I think a lot of managers out in the world are candidly just not good at the skill of management. They've been promoted into managers because they were good at the skill of the function and not necessarily good managers. And so we really gone a long way to invest in making sure that our managers are good at the skill of management. And that I think is a very important part of running a remote organization. So that's probably the, the trickiest thing that we've um, overcome. Thing that was maybe unsurpri or unsurprising, uh, or actually surprising, but positive. I think um, it's easier than it looks. Um, and in fact, the things that people cite as the things they miss sometimes are uh, even better at uh, Zapier. So for example, I have had multiple people say things like, I know my team at Zapier better than I ever knew my team in an office culture. And to people who have never experienced a remote culture, that feels impossible. It's like, how could you, how could you have that kind of relationship via Slack and Zoom versus in an office. And I think I have an hypothesis, a, a hypothesis about why, but I'm not, I still don't know exactly why. But I think a big reason is that, you know, via Zoom, you get exposed to the like human side of that person. You know, right now we're on Zoom and you can see my office and I can see your, uh, the room you're in. And like, if my family walked in or my dog walked in, you would meet them. So you get to just know each other. And I think a way that is a little more real that in an office, you don't always get that. People sometimes come to the office and they put their, you know, non-work self behind and they sort of put on the, the version of themselves that shows up at work. 
but you can't really do that. And in a remote company, you just are who you are. And I think that helps people just get to know folks on a more human level. I love it. And I think what you're really saying, and I'm going to be on purpose hyperbolic here, it's almost the end of professionalization. And what I mean by that is we had this like 80s, 90s, you go to work with this cheesy suit on and you bring this like very formal version of yourself. And I remember coming out of college and it was very much like prepping for interviews and you just like put on this like new facade of prepping. And and I think um, we all know we're happiest when we can be our authentic selves. And I think um, that's what's great about this world. I think we're getting far more woke about that pretty fast. <laughs> um, but I think you're absolutely right, which is that you really get to know who people are in a really, I think, more casual, um, but also more intimate setting in a way where it's just kind of like, this is this, this is me. Um, I'm sitting here in my happy hoodie, Wade, <laughs> getting to know you. Um, and I think, um, I think you're right that it probably just puts people more at ease in a way that I think is really important, but also it just creates a more blurry um, boundary between work and life that um, probably has some some downsides, but also probably is really welcomed in a in a lot of different ways. So I love it. You guys have gone so far that you actually offer a delocation package where your new employees are given the flexibility to relocate anywhere they want. First of all, who came up with that? Because <laughs> I mean, I really who in the company came up with that idea? I want to hear what are employees taking advantage of? Like, what does that look like given that you've been doing this for years ahead of a lot of people? And I can't yeah. wait for everybody to listen to this podcast because I do think there's some incredible nuggets in here about just this improved work-life balance. Yeah. So it was one of our early engineers. We were at one of our retreats, sort of sitting around a campfire late at night. And he sort of pitched this idea of, uh, hey, you know, all all the, we'd hired two people that were in the Bay Area and immediately they moved. Um, and both now in both circumstances, they just had a kid and they moved closer to home to be near grandparents. And so, you know, th this engineer sort of had this insight that, well, there's probably a lot more people who are in the Bay Area, not because they necessarily want to be, but because that's where the jobs are. And that's what, you know, that's where you get to work on interesting problems. Um, but if they had the opportunity to work on interesting problems closer to home, maybe they would. And all these companies are relocating folks to the Bay Area. Maybe we could do the opposite and send them wherever they want. And so that thus became the delocation package. I was originally kind of skeptical, to be honest. I was like, I don't know. Like, I live in the Bay Area myself. You know, I get why folks don't like being here. I get why folks move away, but I'm here. And so I just, there was just sort of like a little bit of that tension in my head where I was kind of like, I don't know. And so I just sort of, I didn't say yes or no. I just sort of like let it be an idea. And that was that. And one of our head of marketing at the time ended up like, we, we just hired a new PR firm and he ended up dropping like, oh, we had this idea about this delocation package, but it wasn't really a thing at the time. And uh, it ended up, um, the PR firm ended up pitching it to, to, I think it was actually Inc. And so Inc. ran with this story and I was like, well, I guess we're doing this now. <laughs> and so I wrote up a thing on how the program would work and say, if you're in the Bay Area, if you get hired at Zapier, you can move somewhere else. Uh, we'll pay $10,000 for your relocation or delocation, right? And um, it's been a massive hit. 52% of the people that we've hired in the Bay Area take us up and leave. And I think it's just simply that it's, a, you know, the Bay Area for a lot of folks is not a great place to live. 
They'd much rather be somewhere else. And if they can and have a great job, they'd love to do it. And that's not to say that there aren't folks who love being in the Bay Area. There are. The Bay Area is great for some things, but it's not for everybody. And so we just tapped into that uh, sort of, I guess, uh, way of thinking early on um, compared to most. Zapier is a productivity tool that automates many different tedious elements using a many now 2,000 plus platforms. If you had to fast forward 10 years, what from running Zapier do you feel is obvious about the future? What is your unique insight that you have just given the fact that you've helped people automate all sorts of things that they don't want to do? What do you think is obvious to you that will happen in 10 years? Yeah, I think there's, to me, the, the computers are going to take over all the stuff that humans are just not good at. Anything around like data entry and reliability and uh, things like that, it's going to get, the, the computers are going to be doing that. Uh, and that's going to leave, I think, what, what, are, what are humans here to provide? And it's going to be things like the experience. It's like, that's where our creativity can come in. And we can start to do the storytelling, do what humans are best at. Uh, and so I think as you look towards the future, we're going to see more folks, more jobs move in that direction and less away from the mundane. No one actually wants to do the mundane work. It's hard to get people to do the mundane work. And even if you do get someone to come in and do the mundane work, they get bored with it after a while and move on. Humans just don't really like that approach to things. And so that's where you know, whether it's tools like Zapier or many others out there, we're finding ways to get rid of that. We're finding ways to automate that. We're finding ways to abstract that away. So it allows humans to focus on the future and focus on the things that I think are, uh, that we are uniquely best at. I want to switch gears to just you. Um, you, you said it earlier, you're, you know, figuring this out, you know, first time uh, kind of founder of a company going, growing this quickly, 300 plus employees. What have you learned that you have to do to be your best self running a business? One of the things I didn't do so well early on was just take care of myself. You know, you've heard me talk about stories of, hey, we would work till 1, 2, 3 a.m. With that comes a lifestyle that is not sustainable. It's not one that sets you up for the long haul. And many years ago now, I realized if I want to be doing this for a long time, if I want to have the kind of impact that I want to have, I have to, and to do my best work, I have to do things like sleep, exercise, eat well. These things are really boring stuff. Nobody, like they're not sexy, but it's the thing, honestly, you're, every time you go to the doctor, what's the solution? Well, you should eat better and you should exercise. I had never gotten really good at doing those things in my lifetime. I never built habits around that stuff. And I just decided, I was like, I'm going to start doing that. So I got better at exercise. I got a lot better at uh, sleeping. I'm still trying to get better at eating. And doing those things, you realize if you get those things, if you get those, if you do those things well, your body starts to respond in kind. And when you go to do whatever it is that you do professionally, you're in good shape to do those things. Your mind is sharp, your body is sharp, and it just makes you better at whatever you're trying to do. And so for me, just focusing on those core foundational things of how I treat myself makes me better at my job. 
are there any things you swear by? Is it an app? It is a tool. Is it something that tracks your activity? It, was there a book you read that you felt really was helpful or insightful? Uh, honestly, the, the turning point for me was when I moved out here and realized, okay, I need to start trying to find something. I thought, well, maybe I could, maybe I could find some people who play racquetball and get back into that. And it ended up just being a really good thing for me because the sport is one that you play with one other person or three other people, singles or doubles. And so there's a bit of accountability where it's like, if, Hey, we got to do this together. I can't do it by myself. So it forces me to show up and do it. I build a routine around it. It's very active, both mentally and physically. So it forces me to just be present and I can't be thinking about Zapier and I can't be thinking about other stuff. And I will go play a couple times a week. Well, not since COVID started, but I would play a couple times a week. And when I'm done with it, I'm just physically exhausted. And so it made it really easy to sleep because I would be so tired. And so that kind of became this like linchpin for me where when I would do that, I would end up sleeping really well, which meant that I would wake up very like fresh and ready to go the next day. And it was just that really simple habit of just making sure that I did that consistency that, that, um, that sort of turned a corner for me. Um, you obviously um, uh, have a co-founder. Can you help us understand any tips you have for other people with co-founders about making sure that relationship stays super strong? I got lucky, honestly. I, you know, I don't, I think you don't always know how it's going to work out. And you, you look at many companies and they start to fall apart because the co-founders can't get along. In our case, I think the three of us just shared values. Like we had a similar value system. We thought about the big problems in the same way. You know, we, my viewpoints on fundraising match theirs. Our viewpoints on building a company match theirs. We shared opinions on how we treat people. You know, we sort of had the same values there. And that foundation, that shared vision meant that any problem or obstacle we faced was just a detail to work out. It was just something to iron out along the way. And so anytime we would get into debates or arguments or whatnot, it always finished with like, hey, you want to go grab dinner? Or hey, you want to go do this? It just, it never was about, you know, us as people. It was always just about how do we solve this problem together? What is the coolest pinch me moment that you've ever had at Zapier? I've had a lot of awesome things happen, but I think any small business owner can relate to this. It was the first dollar we made. Like it just, there's nothing that even compares. Uh, you know, you, I've been lucky enough to meet some celebrities. I've met some very wealthy people. I've met, I've, we've done a lot of cool stuff and it's just still that first dollar is, I don't know, it's pretty special. What's your favorite interview question when you're trying to figure out to add someone to Zapier? I like to ask I like folks that have a learning mindset. And so uh, one of my favorite questions is, uh, tell me something that you've learned the hard way in the last year. Usually I'm just looking for some intellectual honesty. I think folks that are, sell, are, like, are, are lifelong learners have really honest answers about this. And they're very introspective about what has happened. And so they'll say things like, hey, I was trying to solve this problem. Here's what I did. Here's what went wrong. And then here's, if I could do it again, here's the new approach that I would take. A lot of folks will not go that way. A lot of folks will say something like, well, you know, I tried to do this and, you know, it didn't work out right, but they sort of imply that maybe it was somebody else's fault or, you know, they sort of try and diminish their role in the situation to make it feel like it was sort of an accident. And I just really like working with folks that just are willing to dig in and say, hey, this is what I learned. This is what happened. 
you know, here's what I think I could have done differently to make it better. And that to me means that we're going to have someone at the company who is willing to roll up their sleeves and invest in the problems and take ownership of their, their part of it. And as a result, we'll be unstoppable if we have those kinds of people in the company. If you want to pay it forward, what other than Zapier is one startup super early anything that you're excited about that you've learned about? One of my, uh, so one of my favorite companies right now uh, is um, Tara Reed's company, Apps Without Code. So she started uh, very early on, was in, uh, before I think most others latched onto this no code trend. And she started this Apps Without Code, this uh, 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 boot camp that teach non-technical founders how to build apps. And, you know, they teach them how to build them with Zapier and Bubble and Adalo and Glide and all these other different tools. And has now taught um, tons of different founders how to get started with a business, even if you don't know how to write any code. Uh, and many of them have gone on to be sustainable businesses. And I think that's super powerful because you look at historically how many folks are held back by their lack of technical competencies and being able to take a generation of folks who are creative and who have ideas, but maybe just lack this one set of skills and empower them to go do the thing that they want to do. I think it just unlocks a lot for our economy and it unlocks a lot for society when we can take those folks who are do, do have those ideas and make them a possibility. Wade, thank you so much for joining us today. I could have talked to you easily for two more hours. Um, everybody out there listening, if you want to learn more about Zapier, check it out at zapier.com and join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. And Wade, I'm wishing you the best of luck, though I do not think you need it. You are so special and wonderful. Uh, and thank you for being such a phenomenal leader uh, in everything that you're doing. Thanks for having me, Alexa. This was fun.